0: Now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, I'm John McWhorter and I'm a linguistics professor at Columbia University and host of Slate's Lexicon Valley podcast. I recently wrote an article for Persuasion called Living in Blackface. The chattering classes never truly finished with Rachel Dolezal, the white woman who was discovered in 2015 to have spent her adult life passing as black. She was in the news for only a few weeks in June of that year, until the white supremacist Dylan Roof murdered nine black people in Charleston, taking the national spotlight elsewhere. However, Dalazal was more than a mere curiosity. She, along with a similar case revealed this past September, the history professor Jessica Krug, who passed for 20 years as a person of color, are revealing about black identity today, as well as how all of us navigate what has been called our racial reckoning since the murder of George Floyd last spring. Enlightened wisdom today is that, however black lives look from the outside, to go about as a black person in these United States remains an ongoing, almost daily burden. Overall, we're to understand that the changes in the black American condition since 1968 have largely been rearrangements of the deck chairs on the Titanic. The point is usually made with statistics. Whites have about 10 times the wealth of black people, a gap similar to that in 1968. A black man has a one in 1,000 chance of being killed by a police officer. Partly because of disparities in health care, black people are three times more likely to get COVID and twice as likely to die from it. However, the reality of black people's daily existence rarely forces one to confront the differences between our lives and white ones. As even Ellis Coase, Celebrated liberal journalist Dwayne of the Black American Situation has noted, In the real world, such statistics are almost irrelevant, for rage does not flow from dry numerical analyses of discrimination or from professional prospects projected on a statistician's screen. Any observer can see that the openness of racism, and thus black people's daily experience of it, has changed massively over the past 50 years. The braver observer may question the claim often seen on social media from black people that they experience racism quote-unquote every day, every day. Such an observer's skepticism is correct. Dr. King did not fight in vain. And it's for this reason that only today is a fashion emerging for white people to declare themselves black in identity. Dalazal and Krug gave up the white privilege that were taught makes such a decisive difference. They did this to live as the people were told endure such endless misery to such a degree that were to think of oppression as the essence of black Americans, as taught by primers such as Robin DiAngelo's white fragility. There were white figures in the past who played around the color line, of course, most often cited as the white jazz clarinetist Mez Mesro, who, from the 1920s on, styled himself a voluntary Negro, married a black woman, and openly depicted himself as almost black. However, he didn't deem himself black and never broke with his past in the way Dalazal and Krug did. Dalazal, for example, sat calmly in an interview talking on the subject of black oppression and speaking of what we go through. Figures like Mesro didn't take it this far. The difference between Mesro and Dalazal is a clear indication that race relations have been improving in this country. And it's not an accident that Dalazal and Krug are both around 40. They both came of age in an era when perceptions of white privilege and black despair became enshrined as liturgical truth in enlightened circles. Yet despite this, each chose to identify as members of a race supposedly living as America's most broken, tortured outcasts.
1: John McWhorter's piece called Living in Blackface was published by Persuasion. For the full-length reading of John McWhorter's piece and to learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion, head to www.persuasion.community. Well, it's a special pleasure to talk today to David Shaw. I wrote about David back at the end of June in the Atlantic in a piece called Stop Firing the Innocent because he's gone through a rather strange experience this year of posting a completely innocuous tweet summarizing the research of a member of our board of advisors, Omar Wasso, and being promptly fired for it by Service Analytics, a progressive supposed data analysis firm. But David is really one of the deepest thinkers on the progressive left about how to win elections, about the shape of the American electorate, And about some of the really complicated trends in the country that go against the narrative as we often see it in the media. He's somebody who's incredibly knowledgeable, as you see, about the real details of American politics, the difference in the composition of the Senate class that will be up for re election in 2022 versus the Senate class that will be up for re election in 2024. But he's also capable of connecting this to the broader and bigger picture. One of the really interesting things about him is that he's. A very robust and progressive, he self describes as a socialist, but he thinks that in order to win, Democrats have to moderate and put forward more moderate candidates, abandon a lot of the things that are important to them, but that are also quite unpopular among the electorates. So it's a detail oriented conversation. It's also a really interesting one that I think will change a little bit how you see the basic dynamics of American politics. It certainly has helped to change mine. David Shaw, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Honored to be invited. So, you've had a wild ride of a year. You were an influential but not very publicly known data analyst thinking about progressive politics for a long time. Then, you lost your job in a very high profile way. And now, you're all over the media telling us how to understand the 2020 election.
2: Why did you lose your job? Well, I'm not going to talk about any of the details around that, but I'm still working in democratic politics and I'm still consulting you know, with a bunch of large IE groups, but it's definitely been an exciting ride and this has been a super interesting election cycle. Well, that's very polite. You will pretend not to listen to the next two minutes while I
1: give a very brief summary as I understand it. I wrote about David in a piece in The Atlantic at the uh, end of June or perhaps the beginning of July. Uh, he was working for this company called Civis Analytics which claims that they use data in order to understand the world in a more hard-nosed way. And when David tweeted an article by a member of our Board of Advisors, by Omar Wasso, at the end of May, uh, that had just been published in the American Political Science Review, about the political impact of some of the riots in the 1960s, which really helped Nixon get elected. He was promptly fired by Civic Analytics. They gave me a couple of statements, one of which strongly implied that it had nothing to do with a tweet. And then they asked to cut that line because I think they realized they were potentially in the process of perjuring themselves. It was very clear circumstantially from my point of view that it was in fact because of that very anodyne tweet summarizing Omar's research that David was fired. What has that experience been like? I mean, it must be really scary and disorienting. And you really are sort of a champion of irrational cancelings. I mean, you know, if there's like a hierarchy of rational to irrational cancelings, it seems to me that you're really like, you take the top prize, you know. But in some ways, your public profile is now bigger than it was. And people are very carefully listening to your analyses. How have the last months treated you?
2: Yeah, you know, obviously, a lot of people were very angry about what I said. And it was very unpleasant. I wouldn't recommend the experience to anyone, but I am excited that people are interested in what I have to say. And it's been great, you know, just getting to talk to a lot of people who otherwise I wouldn't have been able to.
1: All right. We will go from an area where for all kinds of reasons, you're being very diplomatic and polite to an area where you're much more outspoken. The 2020 election. There's a whole bunch of questions that people have been asking about this election. One of which is, you know, why Republicans did relatively well, why Trump seems to have outperformed his polls. Another is why part of that coalition was a lot of people of color, a lot of Latinos, actually a good number of Muslims, according to some exit polls, a significantly higher number of African-Americans than four years ago for still a very low number. I want to get to that. But first of all, actually, what do you think Biden did right? Why is it that Biden was able to expand the Democratic coalition, especially among white and older voters?
2: You know, I think that the Biden campaign did a lot of things that were very smart. I think that this was real evidence that having a candidate who doesn't mobilize opposition from the base has a lot of value. But I think there's a a different story I want to tell, which is that as polarization has increased it's become harder and harder for any intervention to actually do anything. You know, I help campaigns figure out the right mix of ads or get out the vote or any of these things. And these things still do move votes, but the reality is that they move votes a lot less Than they did before and these effects are tiny i think the best academic estimate is that showing someone a hundred ads in the month before the election you know might increase their chance of voting for you by maybe one percent and that's very meaningful elections are very close but it used to not be this way if you go back to the 1980s it really was true that you could just put an ad in the air and do a poll before and a poll after and there would be six or seven or eight percent swings and i think that Now, because effect sizes are so small and so hard to measure, we've kind of reached this postmodernist world where it's very hard for politicians to know what actually works and what doesn't work, you know, when it comes to what you can observe. So I think both Democratic and Republican politicians, because they can't observe the conversion that they actually care about, which is persuading voters or, you know, persuading someone, inspiring somebody to turn out to vote. They focus on the things that they can measure, which is how much the media talks about you, how many likes your videos get, or how much your stuff gets shared, or how much money you raise. That's something that you get very rapid feedback on. And, you know, the problem with that, particularly in the Democratic Party, is that we have three distinct groups of people. We have people we want to persuade, people we want to raise money from, and people we want to turn out to vote. And the people we want to persuade are kind of low political engagement, working class white people. And the people we want to turn out to vote are, you know, young uh, people of color. And the people we raise money from are, frankly, educated white people. And I think that today's generation of politicians in the Democratic Party, people who have come around since 2008, they've really honed their message to maximize donations and maximize media coverage from a media that is overwhelmingly staffed by young, highly liberal, highly politically engaged people who live in cities. One of the interesting things about this, I think, is that those
1: two groups actually pull in similar directions in a way that may be counterintuitive to many of our listeners, right? So you might think that, hey, if you're trying to carry favor with media run by, you know, young, probably somewhat diverse college graduates in New York City, but you're also trying to raise money among some of the wealthiest constituencies in the country, those two might have very, very different views. The former might, for example, be much more progressive than the latter. But actually, there's some good research, if I'm understanding this right, and you know this better than me, David, so correct me if I'm wrong, that the donor base of the Democratic Party is far to the left of the median voter and far to the left of the median Democratic voter as well. So actually, some of the biases that you'll run into if you have those two groups as your main constituency reinforce each other rather than sort of pulling in different directions.
2: That's exactly right. I think just from a class basis, you know, a lot of these people who work at these journalist firms and also, you know, to be clear, people like me who work in democratic politics, you know, we mostly for better or for worse do come from kind of this upper strata of society. And so even if, you know, we might be more progressive on issues of raising taxes, like the cultural themes that resonate with us are very similar. And as you said, it's true that controlling for education, that, you know, richer people are more conservative than poorer people, but the sheer act of donating to a democratic campaign signifies that you're very liberal. And so, you know, these groups of people are actually very similar, and it means that if you go about your life deciding on what was good or bad is determined by how much money you raise, that's going to really push you in a very culturally liberal direction. But I think there's a really interesting point, which is that if you go back to the 1970s and the 1980s, which is, you know, where Biden was around, there were so many more swing voters. And as a result, you really could build an intuitive sense about what worked and what didn't work. And so I think that Biden has very good political instincts. And, you know, this is something I've struggled with personally. I remember I... I was 20 years old, I came into the Obama campaign and I was going to try to solve everything with numbers. And we would get into these conflicts with kind of these old school, you know, political gurus, and and we really hated them. You know, there was the saying we'd say, you know, destroy the consultants, save the world. And something I've had to come to terms with is over the last eight years, I've slowly learned that all of these things that I was confident about, what persuades people, what doesn't, these are very hard problems now, but they used to be easier problems. And so the experience of these older gurus, I think that, of all the things I disagreed with them in 2012, looking back, I think the consultants were right 80% of the time. And Biden really, really comes from this era where, you know, it was much easier to know things. And I think that's why he was able to navigate this a lot better than a lot of other politicians would have.
1: So this is this sort of paradox. This is fascinating, by the way. It's a paradox in what you're saying. But on the one hand, you can, you know, throw 100 ads at somebody and it'll increase the likelihood of voting for you by 1%, Right. But on the other hand, we do see real movements in the electorate. You know, is one of the lessons of this that the overall message matters much more than the details that you use data in order to answer? I'm really struck by a panel I attended in 2017 at this sort of strange gathering of left-wing think tanks and politicos that Justin Trudeau organizes every year in Canada. And, you know, there's this panel of data analysts and they all said, look, you know, the reason why Trump won is that, you know, his people were just more sophisticated in their data analysis and they had more data and they were able to present Trump one way to one audience and a different way to another audience. And so, you know, they really maximized in this smart way engagement and so on. And that just struck me as fundamentally wrong for a number of reasons. A, because everything I know about Hillary Clinton and her team and Donald Trump and his team makes me skeptical of the idea that Trump's team was so much more competent. And B, because it seems to me that Trump had a very clear and obvious message that some people liked and some people hated. But the idea that sort of, you know, somebody in Philadelphia and somebody in El Paso and somebody in a main, just had fundamentally different ideas of who Donald Trump is, strikes me as on its face implausible. So is there a thing here where you can move voters and you do see real movements of who votes for which party? We'll get into that in more detail later in the podcast, but there's a real difference in who voted for the Democrats this year as opposed to four years ago. But it is actually about the old-fashioned grand narrative the basic identity of a candidate how they approach the world what the basic positioning is rather than this ad this form of micro targeting this get out the vote effort and so on
2: yeah if i could tell a story i just remember you know joining the obama campaign in 2012 and And my boss sat me down and he said, you know, politics is about lists. You've lists of people to persuade, lists of people to turn out to vote, lists of people to raise money from. And your job as a math person is to just sort these lists as well as possible. He said it very confidently and I was young and I listened and I took it to heart and I spent, you know, a lot of time. I tried to sort the lists as well as I could. But, you know, over the next four years, I kind of slowly realized this is crazy. That's actually not what determines elections. Hillary Clinton didn't lose because her get out the vote, You know, lists were not sorted well. I I know the people who worked there, they were excellently sorted. You know, the problem was that Hillary Clinton chose a message and Donald Trump chose a message that led. Non college educated white people who were concentrated in the Midwest to swing against Democrats and their views were highly overrepresented in the electoral college. So these big picture things end up shaping things. And I think empirically it's really clear you know, if you look at county results or survey results, people in swing states don't behave differently. These trends are the same, you know, whether you're in California or Ohio or Florida, and you don't see these big campaign effects. And so I think it's hard because as someone in the industry whose job it is is to advise people people on all of these different campaign tactics, I think these campaign tactics matter a lot less than they ever have before. And, you know, we have to accept this reality that most voters tune out direct political communication. They don't like when people knock on their doors. They mostly tune out ads, not to the point where we shouldn't run them. I think we should. But, The most important driver of what people believe is kind of this gestalt that comes from the media. And, you know, that means that the people who work in the media have an enormous amount of responsibility. You know, after 2016, there was a lot of criticism of the New York Times. But even going to 2020, it means that if you work at Vox, you actually have a bigger impact on what's gonna happen in Connor Lamb's race than Connor Lamb himself does. And that's just a real fact about the world. That's really, really interesting.
0: You know, I've been
1: thinking about this in one particular context. When you look at the class of 2018, the freshly elected Democrats who entered Congress in the 2018 midterms, the really famous faces and voices are the squad, AOC and Ilhan Omar and so on and so forth. There's also a politician that I find really interesting called Charis Davids, who is, you know, has a great story. She's a former mixed martial arts professional who is, I believe, young, lesbian, Native American, charismatic. Now, I'm sure that you've heard about AOC. You, David, have heard about all three, but you, the listener, have heard about AOC and Hannah Oma. Probably you have not heard about Cherise Davids. And the reason for that is simply that Cherise Davids is a moderate. And so she did not receive quite the same media treatment for reasons that I think complicated, partially because those young journalists who decide you know, who gets a nice big interview with Vogue or the New York Times probably are personally more attracted to the political positions of AOC and Ilhan Omar, partially because they may have some idea of who's representative of a rising America and who's not, and they probably have misconceptions about the average political views of non-white people in the country, so they somehow think that AOC is representative of America's future in a way that Cherise Davids is not, which I think is actually wrong. But that creates a real problem of image and perception for the Democratic Party, because even if most members of a Democratic Congressional Caucus are much more similar in terms of a moderate political position to Sharice Davids than to AOC and Al-Han Omar, if the media focus on AOC and al Omar and sort of amplify their message, that's what will determine the brand of a Democratic Party. And that might make it really hard to win congressional
2: races. That might make it really hard to capture the Senate. What do you think about this? I think that's exactly right. Uh, I think when you look, for example, at defund the police, you know, you have this issue that, you know, not only is it toxically unpopular, you know, polling it like 20%, but it was also very unpopular among the Black community and among Hispanics. And I think there's a real dysfunction that it's a lot easier for liberal white people who live in cities to give their opinions on racial issues and have them, you know, get elevated to the highest level, while people who work in the Congressional Black Caucus can't get media interviews because they're not socially proximate. You know, the people who work at MSNBC who are actually placing who gets booked and who doesn't, they're also generally highly liberal Young white people, and they're just socially a lot closer to defund activists, and they are not as close to any of the almost 100 people in the Congressional Black Caucus who actually represent, you know, working-class Black communities. And I think a lot of the answer here, we look big picture at what's happening, is that the disproportionate cultural power of these white liberals, you know, it isn't just turning off working-class white people. It's also, at this point, I think clear from this election result turning off non-whites. And if we want to stop that, we have to figure out how do we create a voice and how do we create you know a microphone for the viewpoints of the working class people, both white and black, who still make up the overwhelming majority of Democrats.
1: There's a really interesting detail in this that always strikes me when I speak to my friends and acquaintances, which is that as you're saying, a lot of these people are, in fact, sort of white and highly educated and at least somewhat affluent. You know, A number of them are not, right? I mean, when I look, for example, at the students that I now teach, it is a very, very diverse group. So it's not true to say that they're all white or that even the sort of youngest cohorts in journalism are all white or something like that. Thankfully, I think that's no longer the case. But it does lead to a very sort of perverse perceptual irony which is that if you are a 25 year old today who went to a fancy liberal arts college or to an Ivy League university, you feel that you have good first-hand access to the views of non-white people in the country. Because you did in fact have classmates who were black and Latino, and you may well be actually friends with them, and you, you may know them pretty well. But of course, what's very difficult to remember is that what you have in common is in some ways politically more defining than what divides you. You are both graduates of fancy liberal arts colleges or Ivy League universities, you know, whose views are both more middle or upper class and much more left wing than that of the average person your age in the country as a whole. And so I think there's a sort of weird mental shortcut that often happens where white people feel like no look like actually i I have a sense of what non-white people think but all of those non-white people are just like them outliers namely very highly educated members of the country's elite and that helps to explain a little bit of what's going on there let me ask you about this phenomenon you just referenced that it seems to be the case that over the last four years The democratic discourse didn't just turn off sort of moderates within their own coalition. In fact, Democrats seem to have done reasonably well at keeping suburban white moderates on board over the last four years. It has also turned off a good number of non-white voters. We see that Trump won Florida in part because Cuban Americans and Venezuelan Americans were clearly quite disturbed by some of the talk about socialism in the party. But we also see very different groups of Latinos swinging against Democrats. To me, the most interesting case here is the counties in southwest Texas that are overwhelmingly Latino, more specifically overwhelmingly Mexican or to some extent Central American, working class. These are not middle-class Cubans who fled Castro 50 years ago. These are, you know, pretty hard-scrabble immigrants who don't come from a country that has the same traumatic experience of, of socialism And yet they also seem to have been turned off by the Democratic Party over the last
2: four years. What's going on there, David? Well, you know, it's it's a great question. I have just a story I wanna share about my time in the Obama campaign, where one of the biggest internal fights we had was that when it came to Hispanic outreach, there was an enormous pressure in the campaign, you know, both from white people, but also from a lot of the Hispanic employees that they really wanted to focus on immigration and have immigration-loaded messaging when it came to Hispanic voters. And, you know, in analytics, we did a big field experiment, you know, we canvassed people, we varied the scripts that we read. And something that came out really clearly was that talking about education did a much better job at persuading Hispanic voters than talking about immigration. And, you know, I've actually seen in a lot of cases that talking about immigration will can decrease support among Hispanic voters, not that Hispanic voters, you know, uh, disagree with us on large, but the marginal Hispanic voter often uh, agrees with a lot of Republican ideas around a path to citizenship that, you know, we should give a path to citizenship for undocumented workers that, you know, include citizenship is actually a lot lower than, you know, people would expect. And it was a real fight. And I think it really gets at a real problem. I think that campaigns and the media, you know, they're always going to disproportionately be educated relative to the overall population. That's kind of the way the world works. You know, highly educated people run the country and they run institutions. I think it's gotten worse. You know, I think that I've seen this in the last eight years, that the percentage of people who work in these campaigns who went to Ivy League schools is higher than it's been. And I think that that's also true in journalism due to a lot of structural factors. But I think this isn't a new problem, but I think it really highlights the importance, you know, of actual measurement and data and doing surveys because, I see the biggest problem in politics, at least in democratic politics, as being that the people who work in politics are these highly ideologically motivated, highly educated, highly politically knowledgeable people. And we really don't have very much in common with swing voters. And we also don't have very much in common, frankly, with you know the working class voters that we're both trying to persuade and trying to turn out, but that extends to the, the non-white community too. And that's why we have to be really rigorous to allow us to step outside of these biases. And I do think there's a really interesting asymmetry here between the Democratic and Republican Party, which is that within party, highly educated people are more cosmopolitan than the average voter. Highly educated Republicans are more cosmopolitan than you know normal Republicans. But in our coalition, that pushes us away from the center. But for Republicans, it pushes them toward the center. And that's a real asymmetry. That's a real problem that uh, Democrats have, which is just that the elite that runs the Republican party is actually more moderate while our elite is less moderate. And that's a hard structural thing to overcome. And I think the core problem in politics is how do we use data to keep us from doing these like kind of dumb things that ideologically we really want to do.
1: That's a fascinating asymmetry but I hadn't thought about at all. You know, on the question of Latinos and immigration, I always think there's a sort of strange way in which we assume that immigrants are going to be on the far left of American politics. You know, which to some extent, in voting behavior, may be true simply because Democrats are, on the whole, more hospitable to immigrants than Republicans, and so that can be a sort of temporary, local effect. But it's strange that we think that non-white voters are going to push the country towards some kind of far-left deal when you look at the countries where they come from, and those countries are not far left to dilts. And in fact, in, on many things, have quite conservative views. You know, this is true in immigration. I was really struck by a poll that was done about building a wall on the southern border, not of the United States, but of Mexico. So there was a Mexican poll a year or two ago in which Mexicans were asked whether they would favor building a wall on the border to Guatemala and so on and so forth. And a majority of Mexicans said yes. So this is just giving you a kind of sense of the mental shortcut that so many of the media use when they say well obviously latinos are immigrants and as immigrants they should like other immigrants and they should be in favor of more immigration and they should be completely against ideas like war now i'm personally completely against the idea of a war but to assume that that's true of everybody who has roots in mexico is to understand very very little about mexico and there was a very telling moment in the primaries when the Democratic candidates were asked to name the president of Mexico, and most of them were not able to do it, which shows us sort of how little they know about that part of the world, actually. Before I get into a rant, I think I'm in danger of ranting right now, which I try to avoid in the podcast. What do you think about this idea of a rising demographic majority that I had Ritik Sarah on the podcast to discuss sometime earlier this year? You know, my sense is that there's lots of crazy ideas that people on the right believe, there's a good number of crazy things that people on the left believe. There's a few crazy things that people on both the left and the right believe. And the rising demographic majority may be the top contender. So this is this idea that because non-white voters tend to vote more democratic than white voters, because their share of the electorate will keep going up, Democrats just have to sort of sit pretty and wait until the glories of victory fall into their lap. It also drives, I think, some really pernicious behavior on the right, where people like Michael Anton basically say, we're going to lose because of these developments. And so we got to get hold of the country right now and do what we can to stop those developments. What do you think is true or false about this idea of a rising demographic majority for Democrats?
2: Yeah, I want to just quickly say something related to, just to what you just said and also to this, which is personally, I grew up in Miami, I went to Florida National University, which is a 65% Hispanic university. And uh, one of my best friends growing up, you know, he was Peruvian and you know his family actually had a lot of problems uh, getting a path to citizenship. But then in their first election, they voted for Clinton. What was very funny was that they were Back in Peru, very big fans of Fujimori. And they were actually like campaigning for Fujimori's daughter who was running. And so it goes to show that actually a lot of these people aren't, you know, dyed in the wool leftists and they supported Clinton because they supported more funding for schools. This is a group that very clearly could have voted for Trump. And Florida, I think, paints a really great picture of if you look in 2000, you know, it was tied, decided by, you know, 500 something votes. And 20 years later, The population of Florida has doubled, and the non-white share of the electorate has doubled. But despite that, Florida is more conservative than it was 20 years ago. And there's a lot of countervailing forces that we used to get the votes of, you know, kind of rural white people in northern Florida, and now we don't. Um, But also, it really just shows that there are countervailing forces. Demographics aren't destiny. And I think that Republicans really shouldn't be afraid of the idea that they can't win fair elections. I think if you look at the congressional vote, it was very evenly split. And that's because voters in the middle really do agree with both Democrats and Republicans on different issues to an extent to which the media doesn't talk about as much. Another really interesting data point from a 2020 election the media
1: hasn't talked about that much for understandable reasons is a referendum in California. Now, California, of course, is a majority minority state. Hispanics and Asian Americans and African Americans make up a clear majority of the electorate in this state. And in the 90s, when California was still overwhelmingly white or majority white, voters had passed a ban on affirmative action in both the influential public university system there, so at Berkeley and UCLA and so on, and in local and state government. A very powerful coalition wanted to overturn that this year. Uh, they had a funding advantage of, I think, 12 or 13 to 1 relative to the people who opposed their amendments so that, you know, university like Berkeley would be allowed to engage in affirmative action again. This was voted down by a quite clear majority of voters. What explains that and what might that tell us about what the actual future of a majority-minority America might look like not just in Florida, but also in California and perhaps across the country?
2: That's a great question. I think this is a good time to bring up the great Awakening, as you know, Matthew Iglesias calls it, which is that, you know, if you look at the GSS, the survey that's been going on really since the 1970s, if you look at a lot of measures of what political scientists call racial liberalism, you know, questions like, you know, why do you think it is that African-Americans have been able to get ahead while other immigrant groups like Jews or Polish people or the Irish have? I don't write these questions. It was very stable, you know, really for decades. But then after the Black Lives Matter protests started in 2014, and, you know, also, I think partially in reaction to Trump's campaign rising in salience, there was this massive increase in racial liberalism among white Democrats, really 20 point, 30 point swings, really nothing like this. has happened in American politics before, and it's, it's a pretty seismic shift. But it's done a really interesting thing, which is that now, if you look at these racial liberalism measures and also these racial resentment measures, white liberals are now more racially liberal than non-white people under a lot of different metrics. But As- My
1: favorite of these metrics, by the way, sorry to interrupt you briefly, David, is that when you ask black people in the United States how they feel about white people, most black people feel pretty good about white people. As in, generally speaking, how do you feel about members of this group and, you know, white people? There's you know, a majority of African Americans, generally speaking, I have good feelings towards them, right? If you ask white liberals how they feel about white people, who you know, by definition are their parents and siblings and so on and so forth, they take a more negative view of white people in the country than African Americans do, which I think is just you know a wonderful fact about our politics.
2: Yeah. And, you know, just to be clear, I think a lot of people uh, go too far and they say, you know, all of these discrepancies about racial resentment proves that, you know, racism isn't real, that all of these people in Southern Mississippi who say that Black people can't get ahead, that discrimination isn't real, that those people aren't racist. You know, racism is real. And the fact that it's hard to measure doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And I want to be clear about that. But I do think that educated liberal white people have kind of fallen into this, you know, very academic post-Marxist definition of racism that is structural and is much more expansive than how people have looked at it before. I personally buy into a lot of these theories. So I'm not saying that those theories are wrong, but I think we have to come to terms with the reality that most non-white people don't actually see, you know, racism in that way. And also, I think another interesting important fact about politics is that, you know, non-white people don't see racism in the same light that I think that white liberals do. I think a lot of white liberals see politics as like this jihad against racism and that, you know, we have to destroy it in every single place and this should be the top political priority. But I think that non-white voters who actually experience racism have a very different relationship with it. You know, one of my favorite factoids is, you know, we did a survey asking people, do you think that Donald Trump is racist? And you know, to be clear, large majorities of black and Latino voters agreed that they were. But you know, among black Trump voters, 35% of black Trump voters agreed that Donald Trump was racist, but wanted to vote for him anyway because they agreed with policies. And if you actually look, this was something that was brought up a lot in the 2016 campaign. If you look at the top priorities, of non white voters. Racism isn't on the top. They care a lot about schools. They care a lot about jobs. They care a lot about raising wages. And I think that we have this overly simplistic attitude of why a lot of these groups vote for Democrats at high rates. You know, Democrats historically have spent a lot of time building real institutions and working with existing institutions like the black church to create material gains for black people and for hispanics and as a result there are representatives of these groups that work very hard to elect their interests and these representatives disagree with a lot of these academic takes i think defund the police was a great example of that where you had something where a lot of the online left and not even outside of the online left you had a lot of white liberals adopting you know very radical views on the police that actual African-Americans didn't agree with at all. And, you know, I think we've reached this point where the median African-American Democrat is closer to the median voter on economic issues or on social issues than white liberals are. And so, you know, the path to electability is actually kind of empowering these working class white people who are being shut out of the process right now.
1: One of the interesting things about you is that you buck a near-universal trend in politics, of which, sadly, to some extent, I too am guilty. Which is to say, you always see this in primary season, right? In 2016, it was particularly stark because there were so few candidates. There people who clearly preferred Bernie Sanders's substantive policy program, and they also would make the argument that Bernie Sanders is much more likely to be Donald Trump. And then there was people who clearly preferred. Hillary Clinton's policy program and general vision of the world. And they would also strongly argue that Hillary Clinton was the better candidate against Donald Trump. So people tend to match their strategic quarterbacking, their predictions as to who will do well electorally, to their substantive policy preferences. You don't really fall into that. As I understand it, you're a self-described socialist. You probably would like the Democratic Party to move to the left if there were no electoral constraints, but you also think that in the great debate that we've seen play out in the last weeks, you know, between people like AOC and people like Abigail Spanberger, about whether a more left-wing stance or more moderate stance is going to help the Democratic Party actually win the congressional majorities, they need to do anything the moderates are right, even for perhaps on policy grounds, you prefer some of a more radical wing of the party. Talk us through that.
2: Yeah, I think that winning elections is extremely important, even though it's become unfashionable. I think there's a lot of political science evidence and also just, you know, evidence in the world all around us, if you look around, that winning elections is mostly about finding issues that voters care about and talking about them. And also taking the stance that they agree with. And there's really a lot of evidence of that from policy conjoints, from cross-sectional regressions. And so I think we have to be honest about, you know, this empirical reality that if you look at a list of all of the senators who have outperformed their presidential, you know, by the most, and you do the same in the house, it is mostly a list of moderate white people who say bland, inoffensive things. I think that people who work in politics and who follow politics, especially on the left, really want large-scale radical change. I personally do, but I think we have to come to terms with the reality that the median voter is 50 years old, doesn't have a college degree, doesn't follow politics very closely, and doesn't want large-scale radical change. I like to say that there's a Democratic governor in Kansas and a Republican governor in Vermont, and that happened because in both places, both very safe states presidentially, the governors tried to pass these very expansive changes in Vermont. They tried to pass single-payer health care, and in Kansas, Sam Brownback basically tried to get rid of public schools and slash taxes, and that created a real backlash. And so that means that if you want to pass radical change, I think that in the media ecosystem, and as a candidate, you have a lot of incentives to cast what you want in the most radical, unpopular shift. You know, one of my friends calls this acid coding. That's how you get attention on Twitter, that's how you get, you know, the media to cover you. But that's not what voters want. And that doesn't mean that we can't have left-wing policies. I think that if you Look, the left and the center and the liberals, no one has a monopoly on either good or bad ideas in terms of popularity. You know, I like to say AOC, she proposed uh, the Loan Shock Prevention Act, which caps interest rates at 15%, which sounds anodyne. It actually has, I think, more radical implications than people realize. And it pulls at 70, 80%, even with Republican con arguments. While the Affordable Care Act, which was a product of the liberal wing of the party, was one of the most unpopular pieces of legislation you know, to ever get passed and contained a lot of things like the individual mandate that were highly unpopular. So I think, We really need a politics, if we want to win, centered around passing popular policies or advocating for popular policies on both the left and the right. And we have to be really honest about which is which. I think in our space, there's a lot of propaganda in issue polls where it's very easy to write a poll where you ask people, do you think the government should provide health insurance to everyone? And 60 percent of people say yes. And then they go, oh, look, Medicare for all is super popular. But if you pull things in the right way, if you give things a partisan context, if you include the pay-fors that would be necessary, or if you ask things like, should we ban private health insurance, then you get a more realistic sense that a lot of these things that are very dear to the left, whether it's the literal aspects of a lot of the Great Green New Deal or whether it's single-payer healthcare, they are really unpopular. And so we have to come to terms with these constraints that middle-class tax increases are actually very unpopular and politically unworkable and that a lot of the culturally liberal policies and frames that people want to talk about are also unpopular. But I think if you avoid those landmines then you can actually pass a very transformational agenda. And this is something I said in my New York Magazine interview, but you know, as someone who identifies as a socialist, I feel like a lot of people who I see on the online left, their history of the left ends in 1918. And the reality is that there were a bunch of very left-wing socialists who actually put together coalitions and won elections throughout Western Europe and spent the entirety of the 20th century gradually building their welfare state. And I think you have to look at what they actually did, the challenges they actually faced, and some of the compromises they had to make. You know, one of my favorite historical figures, not saying I like him or dislike him, was, I'm not saying this right, but Kresky in Austria, he was the first Jewish SPD party leader. He actually had to cut a deal with the far-right nationalist party, which was probably personally very difficult with him in order to get a lot of the policies that he wanted passed. So I think, you know, we have to be clear-eyed about the mistakes you know that left-wing people have made whenever they tried to pass middle-class tax increases or you know give too much power to unions and led to runaway inflation like we have to be clear-eyed about this uh it's not that you know we can just come in with sheer will and transform the country and I, i think we really should just not make the same mistakes we have the benefit that there's been generations of people who have tried to make the world you know a fairer place and we should learn from the mistakes that they made and not repeat them
1: so there's a flip side to what you've been saying, which is, I think, very interesting, which is that there's this theory on the left that, you know, you want to just mobilize young people by coming up with these slogans that are going to really appeal on social media and on Twitter. And that's how you win elections. And I think you've outlined that very, very clearly why that flies against the face of the evidence. A, it's really, really hard to mobilize those young voters. Uh, Bernie Sanders actually failed in the 2020 primaries to do that. B, there just isn't that many of them. As you were saying, the median democratic voter is actually sort of a 50-year-old moderate without a high school degree somewhere in the middle of a country. C, if you did somehow manage to raise the stakes of politics, and mobilize people, you'd also manage to mobilize the other side. So you end up in some ways what you did in 2020, a record turnout, but a record turnout on both sides of the aisle. And D, D, when you actually look in a fair way about how moderates and progressive each fare in battleground districts or battleground states, it turns out that moderates have consistently done better than more radical politicians. Of course, you can gerrymander with a comparison and look at how a very progressive politician performs in a district that always votes for Democrats by a 50-point margin, and then it looks like they're winning bigger victories, but that's clearly not the way to think about it. Now, the flip side of this seems to be that there are actually some pretty progressive policies that would make a real difference to people in the country that are broadly popular. I think one of the interesting referenda we saw in 2020 on that side of the ledger is in Florida, which again, voted for Donald Trump by a small but substantial margin where I think something like 60% of the population voted to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour. So if Democrats wanted to avoid the unpopular issues that actually drive progressive change by being bold on relatively large-scale changes that Americans will actually get on board with, what would that political program look like?
2: Well, there are A bunch of policies that are extremely popular most of which are economic you know raising the minimum wage and making healthcare access easier making it easier to college but there are cultural issues too i think that sometimes we assume that all of these cultural issues are unpopular when you know at this point gay rights is very popular trans rights are actually very popular i think you know backlash to a lot of the anti-trans politics that the republican governor corey did in north carolina played a role in his defeat in 2016. And, you know, I think police reform, especially in the wake of the protests, is more popular than it's ever been. It's no longer a losing issue. But I think we should look bigger picture at why this is happening, which is, I think if you look at demographic changes since the 1940s, going in the 1940s, something like 4% of voters had a college degree. And going out to 2020, it's going to be something like 40%. And so I think if you look at these campaigns... In the past, whether it's LBJ or looking at Europe, whether it's you know social democratic politics all over the place, they had this constraint that the left has always been run by highly cosmopolitan people, the intellectuals and coffee houses and what have you. But they knew that highly cosmopolitan voters were only one percent of the population. And I think that they knew that you couldn't run a campaign on the basis of cosmopolitan identity politics. You know, in 1972, we tried and George McGovern got slaughtered, even though he did very well among professional voters who were at that point a much smaller percentage of the electorate. And now that the country is so much more educated, you know, you can win races, at least primary races or, you know, New York mayoral races by like campaigning on these culturally sensitive issues. But it's a very ahistorical thing. And I think that in the long term, that's a good thing for the left. It's a good thing for the country that there are these long-term trends. The country is getting more educated. The country is getting more secular, but we're not there yet. And that means that we really have to go a lot closer to these like formulas that actually were successful in passing redistributed policies in the past, which was meeting voters where they were, not pushing policies that were unpopular, but focusing on these broadly popular economic issues. I think in the Democratic Party, we have this love affair, you know, with mobilization because it doesn't entail any kind of ideological compromise. You know, we'll just turn out all these non-voters, these like secret socialists who are tuned out of politics, and then we don't have to compromise with culturally conservative whites. And I think something that's interesting about the last four years is that 10 years ago, I think it was definitely true that if everybody voted, Democrats would win in a landslide. But as non-college educated whites trended toward the Republican Party, it's no longer that clear. So that's something that was really showcased in 2020, where we had this record high turnout. But these new voters were probably somewhat more Republican in the country overall. And so that really highlights you know, some of the structural problems that it's no longer true. That as the Democratic Party does better among these highly educated voters, who are these very politically engaged and less well among lower socioeconomic status voters, This trade-off has kind of been turned on its head. It's easy to imagine it even reversing if our losses among non-white voters continue. So the 2020 election has been notable
1: in bringing about a kind of racial depolarization of our politics. I don't want to overstate the extent to which this is the case. If you know that somebody is Asian American or Latino or certainly Black, it's still a pretty good indicator that we voted for the Democratic Party, if you know that somebody's white, it's still a pretty good indicator that they voted for Republicans, but this is far less the case than it was four years ago. And I think that that's in itself a positive development. I would much rather, as I've said before in this podcast, living in America in which I can walk down the street in 2014, and 2050, and not be able to tell who you voted for by looking at the color of your skin, than one in which perhaps Democrats keep winning victories, but it is because, you know, we had this very deep racial polarization of our politics. I don't think that's healthy for the country. I have two questions about this. Number one is, did this happen because of Donald Trump or despite Donald Trump? And number two is, it's related, is this the beginning of a long-term trend? Is this giving us a glimpse of a racial depolarization which will continue to accelerate? Or is this... Possibly an outlier, and we will see future elections being more racially polarized again.
2: Well, you know, making predictions about the future is super hard. But I'll say there's this long term trend, not just in the US, but in places like the UK or France. College educated voters who used to be very right wing trending toward the left, and working class voters who used to be very left wing trending toward the right. And there's a great graph on this, but it's been happening at a pretty steady, almost linear pace for the last. I'd say, 60 years across Western democracies. And Barack Obama, to an extent to which people realize, managed to stem this and go against the trend. He presided over one of the only periods of educational depolarization that's really happened in the last 40 to 60 years. And I think that people didn't realize that that was key to his victory. It wasn't that he mobilized all of these non-white voters. It's that he got all of these kind of culturally conservative white people in places like Iowa or Wisconsin to turn out for him. You know, one of my favorite statistics is the crosstab of people who agree with the Democrats on health care and disagree on immigration. There's something like 12, 15 percent of the electorate. And Obama got 60 something percent of these voters and Clinton got something like 39 percent of those voters. And that actually is the story in a lot of ways of 2016. But Donald Trump kind of brought things back to trend and then some maybe he accelerated the trend a little bit. But I would guess that this trend is going to continue. And if you have this steadily increasing education polarization, as you make politics, you know, a referendum on your cultural values, I think that working class white people and working class non-white people culturally have a lot more in common with each other than they do with educated white people. And so I think that this trend will probably continue. I think that Democrats should do everything that they can to swim upstream the way that Obama did, because this trend, if it happens slowly enough, is manageable because the college-educated share of the electorate keeps increasing. But you have to slow this decline and kind of reverse this decline long enough for these demographic trends to make our coalition workable. And right now, even if we can win 50 or 52% of the vote, you know the nature of American democracy is that rural people without college degrees are just heavily overrepresented, you know, in the Senate, in the Electoral College, really every level of government. And so, you know, we have to do everything we can to reverse this decline if we want to pass any laws this decade. So let
1: me sharpen this question a little bit.
2: After the 2012 election, there was a famous
1: postmortem of the Republican Party when they said, look, you know, we need to manage to increase our appeal with non-white voters, especially Latinos. And it was thought at the time that the way to do that was to moderate in all kinds of ways, especially in immigration, but also on a few other issues, right? If Republicans have a similar post-mortem now, which is to say, hey, actually, we seem to be competitive among Latinos. There's a little bit of upwards room among African-Americans. Perhaps we can actually make inroads among Asian-Americans. Let me run a hypothesis by you. Perhaps what they should do is to get rid of the craziest parts of Trump, get rid of the actual race-baiting, get rid of the actually bigoted things he said, but try to put cultural issues into the center of the conversation, try to highlight the ways in which parts of the democratic coalition are outside of the cultural mainstream on a whole set of issues. So it may be that parts of Trumpism harmed the prospects among those voters, but aspects of a kind of right-wing populism that perhaps looks a little bit more like Boris Johnson than like Donald Trump helps them build those voters. If you really went over to the other side for a few days... Is that what you would tell them, or what would you tell Republicans if they want to actually increase the vote share among those groups?
2: I think we can't ignore that Trumpism has been very good for the Republican Party. That the structural biases in the Senate and the Electoral College have become much larger than existed before. So I think that this shift of switching to cultural red meat and you know kind of trying to appeal to these racially resentful whites, I think that that has been a good thing for Republicans and I'm skeptical that they're going to move away from that. I think it's definitely true that there are aspects of Trump, you know, he was the most unpopular president ever, I think, or at least in modern times. And so there's a lot of aspects of him, you know, he, he seemed very narcissistic. He, you know, didn't have a lot of political sense, but I think that the parts of Trumpism that were scariest, you know, the authoritarianism, the race hating, I think that those were a net positive. And I think that this election has proven that the level at which Trump did that wasn't incompatible with increasing your vote share among non-whites. I think- How do you
1: square that with the fact that Trump underperformed uh, most Republican congressional and senatorial candidates? So this is interesting. It goes against my instincts. My instinct, if I were to go over to that side for five minutes, would be to say, you want to drop the actual bigoted stuff. You want to drop the actually straightforwardly racially resentful stuff and so on. But you do want to say, hey, these Democrats and the left are nuts and they want to change the country radically and they want to put it down. They want to say that everything is terrible and actually we love our country and we have nothing to apologize for. Something along those lines, I don't agree with all of that, obviously, but I think to me seems like it's striking the right balance. And I think that's where a lot of Senate and congressional candidates were, who, especially in the spring districts, were not moderate, but they were also not engaging in the kind of race baiting that Donald Trump is and that helps to me to explain why they outperformed Trump. But this is the first time I think in this whole conversation that our instincts really go in different directions so I'd like to hear where I'm going wrong.
2: I think that there were a lot of aspects of Trump that were bad politics. I think that you know obviously there's a lot of aspects of him even Republicans will say that you know they don't think he's honest and trustworthy and I think that that's something that did hurt his performance But something I like to say about 2016 is that, you know, I think Donald Trump is more racist, I guess, to use a shorthand, than the median voter. But, you know, he's more racist than something like 65% of voters, while Hillary Clinton was more woke on racial issues than something like 90% of voters. And there is an asymmetry there that I think people don't want to come to terms with. I think it's probably true that the Republican Party can dial down the racial appeals a little bit. And I think Donald Trump did that in 2020 and it it played a big role in doing better in uh, some of these non-white areas. They really tried to do a lot of non-white outreach and it probably paid off. But I think we shouldn't get too optimistic. You know, the reality is that the median voter is still very racially conservative. And if the Republican Party moderates a little bit, I don't think they'll have to moderate by very much.
1: So let's bring you back over to the other side to round off the conversation. What does... Joe Biden and what do the Democrats need to do in order to capture an actual Senate majority in 2022 and get elected in 2024? And what are the top three things they should avoid?
2: 2022 is going to be very hard. Midterm environments are usually very bad for the incumbents. And Democrats face a lot of structural biases. It's not super clear to me that even if we match what was really the best midterm environment for any incumbent ever, you know, George Bush in 2002, his party got about 51.9% of the two party vote. And it's not super clear to me that if we repeated that, that we would be in a position to keep the House or take back the Senate. So I think there's a very thin path to victory in terms of being able to capture things. It does exist. It is theoretically possible. It involves us having a lot of discipline in terms of what issues we talk about and what candidates we end up selecting. But it is possible. And unfortunately, we have this small window, this gets a little esoteric, but the bias of the Senate is very interesting in that there's this one class that came up in 2018 that is much more rural and you know much more Trumpy than the country overall. It kind of stems, uh, ironically, from Republicans creating a bunch of these states in the late 19th century. And so how conservative it is, is really highlighted by the 2018 elections where Democrats had a wave year. They got 54%, and they still lost two Senate seats. And if you held that in 2024 in a more neutral partisan environment in a presidential year where there's less ticket splitting, you know, we could easily lose seven or eight Senate seats. And so we have this very narrow window. 2020 was our best opportunity and there's still a chance in Georgia. But 2022 is really kind of our last shot, probably for the rest of the decade, to capture seats before this kind of bloodbath happens in 2024, no matter what happens. And so I think that it's really incumbent on everyone to have a lot of discipline and do everything that we can, because it's really kind of the only path we have to being in a place where we can pass laws and fix a lot of these structural uh, disadvantages we face.
1: That's fascinating on some of the sort of electoral details, and it really shows your mastery of, you know, the differences in the composition of the Senate class that will come up in 2022 versus 2024. But imagine for a moment that you're one of those data-averse, old-style consultants who you looked down on when you were in the Obama administration and now sort of recognize actually they had something interesting to say. Give us the old-style consultants' advice on what Biden should and shouldn't do.
2: I think the answer is actually very simple, which is we should do things that are popular and we should talk about things that are popular and we should really avoid the things that aren't, even if they're very dear to us and very dear to our coalition. Once you are the president, you have agenda setting control. You know, this was a big problem Democrats had. Trump ultimately could determine what the media was talking about. And now that we have the presidency, we can influence the media environment in terms of what gets talked about. And the winning issues for Democrats have always been healthcare, making the country more fair, but doing so in a way that, you know, doesn't entail large scale middle class tax increases or, you know, sweeping unpopular regulations. And so, that's the answer is we have to do everything we can to keep the conversation on topics that are good for us and keep the conversation away from topics that are bad for us. It's really that simple.
1: So we should talk about healthcare. We should talk probably about things like minimum wage. What
2: should we not talk about? I'm really putting me on the spot. I think if you look at you know what's unpopular, I think it's a lot of stuff involving immigration, though there are maybe some popular pieces there. I think that There's a lot of rhetoric around race, though I don't want to be too absolutist there. Police reform is an incredibly popular uh, thing and polls very well. But I think more than that, we have to look at who's determining the brand of our party and find out what kind of voices resonate with working class voters and which ones don't and do everything we can to put the spotlight on people who actually have working class appeal and not on people who don't. David Shaw, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's been super fun.